Join me, Dr. Cathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooltop Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. Dr Melissa Oldham is a research fellow at University College London, contributing to projects around youth drinking and digital interventions to reduce alcohol consumption. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Melissa. How are you? Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us in this very important podcast about a topic that every parent in the world is interested in, and that is youth drinking, and specifically, you know, harmful drinking. What does that look like? What should we be doing as parents, carers, and educators around this issue? So we're very excited to hear what you have to say. And I'll just start by, I think it's a good place to start about trends in youth drinking, because I think there might be an assumption that young people drink quite a lot, and certainly post-pandemic. Tell us what the research says. So over the last 30 years, there's been quite a consistent decline in youth drinking. So young people start drinking later. And when they do start drinking, they drink less frequently and also less in terms of volume, which is all kind of quite positive. And that's not just in the UK, that's quite a consistent global trend across kind of higher income countries. So North America and across Europe. So yeah, that's we're seeing declines, but that that doesn't mean that there's kind of no problem with youth drinking. So young people, particularly in the UK, still drink quite a lot. And what we do know is that kind of any underage alcohol consumption, there's there's no safe limit. So it's not that there's nothing to be concerned about there. I think. And in terms of other cultures, places like Italy, Greece, where perhaps, you know, France, you know, parents often say to me, oh, in those other cultures, you know, it's okay to give your child maybe, you know, a drink at dinner or a little bit of wine. How are we doing compared to those sort of cultures? So I think the rates in, there's there's a, a European study, SPAD, which compares different drinking rates across the different European countries. And I think the UK and Ireland a couple of years ago was one of the highest in terms of of youth drinking, in terms of kind of how much it happens. And I do think this idea that kind of it's normal for young people to drink in Europe is is not necessarily true. I think that's something that you kind of hear a lot, but I'm not sure that that is really accurate. I think we have quite a kind of warped idea about what other drinking cultures look like, perhaps. And there are lots of complex explanations for the decline in youth drinking aren't there you know to do with so many different factors and also there's so much content in children's lives now they have multiple lives so much more access to lots of activities so tell us a little bit about some of those theories yeah so there's there's lots of kind of different reasons and because we know these are global trends it's unlikely that there's kind of one silver bullet explanation which explains why these things are happening but we've done some work recently at the University of Sheffield and what we did was we asked young people about what they thought the reasons for the declines were and it was quite interesting because a lot of the things they were kind of talking about overlapped with some of the theories from research 
And a couple of things that I thought were interesting and have some overlap as well uh, are around access to alcohol amongst underage drinkers and also parenting styles and how that's kind of changed. So we know that amongst underage drinkers, it's become quite a lot harder for them to get alcohol. So with the introduction of regulations such as Challenge 21 and Challenge 25, it's actually much more stringent now. It is harder for people or young people to access alcohol. And we know that actually most underage drinkers get alcohol from their parents or from the home. So around half of young people who report drinking reported getting the alcohol from, from relatives or taking it from their home with or without permission. And it Part of the kind of the reasoning around this is that parents talk about damage limitation. So they'd rather kind of give their children lower strength alcohol and they'd rather them drink it in kind of a, what they see as a supervised setting. And they kind of think of that as promoting kind of responsible drinking or, or teaching their children to drink in a responsible way. And when we look at the data, you see that, as I say, increasingly young people are, are reporting getting alcohol from those sources, but they're also reporting more drinking at home, in their own home or another's. And I think that's a shift as well. I remember when I was younger, you know, younger people tended to drink outside of the home in parks without their parents' permission. So I think that kind of shift in context is very interesting. And as I say, the kind of these trends are global. So there's likely to be kind of wider changes as well. And one idea is that alcohol's kind of lost some of its position in young people's lives as being this kind of necessary rite of passage almost, and that young people's lives have changed. So the activities and things that, that young people do now and engage in are less kind of focused around drinking and parties. Yeah, there's a lot of diversity in terms of what is on offer for young people as well. So I want to return to the heart of this issue that you just described. And I know a lot of parents listening to this would want to ask you this, but if you had a 14-year-old at home, would you be giving him a few beers with his friends on a Saturday night? You know, Do you adhere to that harm reduction approach? Why do parents do that? And what is what is not evidence-based about that approach? So I think the reasons, and you can understand kind of why why parents do kind of feel that pressure to do it and that their view, I'm sure, would be they're going to get it somewhere. So I'd rather they kind of get alcohol from me. I can control how much and what they drink. So I think a big part of it is kind of giving young people perhaps beers and uh, alcohol pops even I don't know how much of a thing they are anymore but that kind of thing rather than allowing them to get kind of harder spirits and things like that from other places and I think that's kind of the logic around why it happens my personal view is that it's not a good idea I don't think there's there's evidence which suggests actually that young people who get alcohol from their parents or drink at home experience the steepest escalation in drinking and those drinking at home tend to drink more heavily outside of the home as well. So my view of it would be, no, personally, I I wouldn't and don't think it's a very good idea to give underage drinkers alcohol. I think instead of that, my advice to parents who want to, you know, help their children around alcohol would just be in the first instance to be very open and honest around these conversations. I think young people often see decisions as being hypocritical. So I think it'd be important as parents to kind of address those things around their own drinking, to explain to young people why it might be okay for them to drink in certain contexts, but why they don't think that's acceptable for them in the first place. And I think that another kind of factor is is modelling. So it sounds quite obvious, but if 
as parents, you're wanting to kind of set this example, then it's probably best not to drink, you know, too much around your children or to have kind of those normalising conversations about being drunk as an adult either. So kind of setting a, a firm, good example. Another thing is kind of around just being quite vigilant so having that sense of where your kids are who they're with and what they're doing you know greater vigilance generally is linked to to less consumption amongst young people there is a sort of a danger isn't there of children sort of taking the message that alcohol is okay to drink at 14 if their parents give them prosecco or low alcohol beer but then from anecdotally i think so many young people seem to be drinking spirits like vodka, things that would have been, uh, you know, even growing up in Ireland as a teenager, that was completely unacceptable in terms of at that age to even think about. So I've been personally quite surprised by the appetite for spirits amongst younger teens, just anecdotally. Is that borne out by the evidence? Well, it's an interesting question. There are kind of studies which look at beverage specific, kind of what what young people are drinking. I think generally speaking, the proportions are tend to be towards those kind of lower, almost like gateway alcohols. So like Alcopops were always kind of one, particularly amongst younger teenagers, because obviously they're, they're quite sweet and they don't taste too strongly of alcohol. I think the, the problem with things like spirits are that obviously it's very high strength it kind of often requires an element of self-pouring and for younger inexperienced drinkers it's very easy to get very drunk very quickly and potentially end up in quite dangerous situations both in terms of you know victimization so who's around you and what could they do and just also in terms of accidents and and health more generally So when we're talking, I love this idea of family conversations about alcohol. Children can sniff hypocrisy a mile off, can't they? So I think it's important. I mean, I always say to my 12-year-old, if he says, oh, mommy, you know, do you like wine? And I'll say, well, sometimes I like a glass of wine to relax and it can be, you know, nice to be with friends, but I'm an adult. Or, you know, they're interested in why we think it might be a good idea to drink. And not everyone does. That's another thing to bear in mind. I think there's a sort of a sense that everyone drinks. That is absolutely not the case, is it? No, definitely. I think there's kind of increasingly a move, particularly amongst young people, and that's not just kind of teenagers, but also kind of younger adults towards abstaining from alcohol completely or drinking kind of a lot less frequently. And I think there's interesting changes around kind of the low alcohol, no and low alcohol options now, which are really kind of expanding that space and allowing people to go into these social situations in a way that kind of feels like they're joining in and looks like they're joining in, but where they're not actually drinking alcohol as well. So I think that it's important rather than just to assume your child will drink, enjoy alcohol and need to drink. As a parent, we can talk about those movements, the clean gin movements, the, you know, there's lots of interesting influencers who've been down some dark paths with alcohol who now advocate, you know, very fashionable social media influencers who advocate that clean lifestyle, which can be very appealing to young people. But we have to sort of bring that out into the open a little bit more. Absolutely. And I think that alcohol is so interesting and it's so unlike any other drug because it's so ingrained in society. The the, the idea is that everybody drinks and it's completely normal. You would never normalise giving your children cigarettes or cannabis, but with alcohol, people do find that quite normal. And I think part of the kind of conversations with young people should be about 
like you say, challenging that to some extent, but also being really open and honest about the, the negative side of alcohol. And I think often this is kind of portrayed as being when people talk about the harms, it's about kind of, I don't like the term, but alcoholics or, or people who, who abuse alcohol. But that's that's just not the case. And it creates this situation where people kind of other alcohol harms and they think, oh, but that won't happen to me because I'm a responsible drinker and I drink, you know, I, I don't drink very often. But what we do know about alcohol is there's a dose response effect. So what that means is the more you drink, the more likely you are to experience harms. It's not as though there's this kind of dichotomy between safe drinkers and harmful drinkers. There's there's no safe limit. So I think having those conversations around the harms of alcohol and also kind of links to uh, specific health conditions. So we know that alcohol contributes to causing, I think, seven types of cancer and lots of other health conditions as well. And I think that's something that often parents aren't aware of. So, you know, their children won't be. And I think kind of putting it in those terms as well allows people to have kind of a better balanced view of alcohol, perhaps. I think it's important what you said about modeling, because I've got a 12 and a 15 year old and I was saying to my husband on Saturday night, it's a good time in their life to model the fact, you know, we're going out on Saturday night, we might have a few glasses of wine, that means we have to get a taxi home. So you start talking about things like drink driving, you talk about the harms that, you know, making, talking about drinking water, you know, in between alcohol. So there's lots of things to model and be conscious of, I think, in our parenting before your children start to drink, the sort of etiquette. Yeah, absolutely. I do. I think it's it's important to, as I say, be quite open because if as a parent you drink alcohol, which I'm, there's no judgment, that's obviously absolutely fine. But if you do, your kids will know. So there's this idea of, you know, you, you can't really hide it from kids. Like they will know because they will see it around the home. They will know when you've gone out. They will see if you're a little bit hungover the next day. So I think it is just about being quite open. And what we were talking about earlier in terms of having open conversations about why it's different for adults as opposed to just kind of saying well I'm a grown-up which Mm -hmm. young people won't kind of read into the associated factors but really outlining those and saying you know I'm older my body processes alcohol in a different way you know I know what I can drink and what I can be okay to be safe both in terms of kind of you know being too drunk in your body and also being safe outside of the house when you when you're drunk and kind of really getting into those kind of factors which do mean that there's different risks for adults versus kind of younger children yeah I think we can be a bit caught off guard as parents and don't really know what to say so that's very helpful so if we're talking about the impact of drinking say on I'm picking on a 14 year old here because that's quite a sort of a seems to be the first age that parents give their children alcohol according to the alcohol education trust a a child might say but I only have a couple of beers on a Saturday night maybe or I haven't drunk too much what where's the counter argument in that they, they said, well, that's not going to harm me once off or every couple of weeks. Or what would you say to that? And how, how do you talk to them about the impact of alcohol on their young bodies and brains? Yeah, so I think it's, they are kind of difficult conversations to have. And, you know, in the grand scheme of life, if a, if a young person is having a couple of beers a month, then the chances of them experiencing harms aren't particularly heightened, perhaps. But one thing to be aware of is that the younger that young people start drinking 
the more likely they are to drink more as they get older. So it's something that could potentially lead to kind of cumulative risks if that is then kind of normalised and continues to exponentiate in terms of how much young people drink. There's also elements of kind of how much people are drinking at one time. So a beer perhaps is not going to put you again at kind of increased risk of accidents and and victimisation, but drinking more than that could do, particularly with younger people who don't quite know their limits yet. It's quite easy to, to get drunker. So I think it's kind of situations like that and I do think you know having those conversations and and knowing what your kids are doing is important and I think just saying no don't don't have it then is is probably not going to have any effect but Mm. try to be open about those risks and harms I think would be better. If a teenager comes home really really drunk to the surprise and shock of their parents I think this is a question I always get asked you know what to do or say well first of all they're going to feel incredibly awful and it's probably not a good idea to have the conversation when you've got a hungover teenager would you agree with that? Yeah, I think it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because obviously, as a parent in that situation, I can imagine you'd be quite angry and you would want to kind of address those things quite quickly. But I think in terms of having that conversation, it's probably better done kind of the day after the hangover day. I think it would be fine to that morning say this behaviour wasn't acceptable and we need to have a conversation about this. We're very concerned and then save that for the next day. Because I think if you're trying to speak to someone, I mean, I think a lot of people have experienced a hangover and uh, would know how they would feel about having a conversation like that. So yeah, I think I probably would agree with you there. There is something else. You've mentioned victimisation. Is there any research to look at gender differences in terms of alcohol consumption and victimisation? I mean, I'm sort of hypothesising that potentially girls are more likely to be victimised in certain contexts. But is that correct or not? Victimisation is quite a broad term. So there's lots of factors. And so there's violence in terms of fighting, muggings, thefts. There's also obviously kind of sexual assault and those kind of things. And I think there's probably elements where proportionately girls and boys might suffer different victimisation in those situations. But yeah, I would say that in terms of victimization overall, I imagine there's kind of similar rates. Yeah, that's quite interesting. So th- th- there, again, it all depends on the context, doesn't it? And what's going on. And there's something about, you know, when we talk about context, you're drinking at home, but going to a party, teenagers going to parties. What would you say about those different contexts in terms of how the advice might have to be altered or changed in, a, in advance of an event? So I suppose it's the thing with drinking outside of the home is there's less control. So if your kids are drinking in in your house with alcohol that you've provided, there's that element of, well, you know what they have and who's there and that kind of thing. I suppose the difference is when your kids are going out and they're going to somebody else's house, you don't know what other parents have provided or, or given or what other young people have managed to get from their home. So when the surveys kind of measure where young people get alcohol from there's always this kind of proportion i think it's around 10 15 percent who say they get alcohol from their own or other's home and it's stolen (laughs) so there's also this element of you can give your kids what you think you're giving them but they might have ways to get other alcohol from either your home or from their friend's home so there's that element of control so i think kind of having those conversations around 
understanding perhaps who might be supplying that alcohol or what it is or what's there, I think would be important in that context. I mean, what about the law? It's a, it, Surely it's against the law to give a child alcohol, whether you're the parent or not. Is that true? Yeah, it's a, to supply uh, an underage drinker with alcohol is, is against the law. So I think I think we've just sort of, you know, culturally forgotten about that. And it just seems to be something that people shrug their shoulders a little bit about. Mm, I think that's just like I said before, there's alcohol has this kind of different status in terms of a drug in our society. And it's seen as being this kind of normal rite of passage like no other drug is really. What about displacement arguments where people say, well, they're not drinking because they're all, you know, smoking cannabis or they're trying drugs or they're doing other risk behaviours? Is that borne out by the evidence? So this is an interesting one. So up until quite recently, the last few years, actually the decline in alcohol consumption was accompanied by a decline in drug use. So it didn't seem to be displacement that young people were drinking less alcohol but were taking more drugs. But then over the last few years we started to see an increase in drug use. So the kind of drugs of choice for younger people tend to be cannabis is kind of the biggest one. And there has been a bit of an uptick there. And there's also kind of prescription drugs as well is uh, is one that's get mentioned. And then nitrous oxide. So these little metal canisters that you see everywhere. That's something that seems to be kind of increasingly used amongst young people. But that's one that was never measured in the surveys. It's quite kind of a new addition. So it's difficult to kind of measure the trends in that because we don't know how much of it was done before, you see. So nitrous oxide, I've seen the little canisters scattered in the park, you know. Is that dangerous? What should we know as parents that you do know about that? I would say, so I'm predominantly an alcohol researcher, so I wouldn't claim to be kind of a drug expert, but I would say that any kind of drug use, particularly amongst teenagers, is is dangerous and, and will carry risks associated with it. So kind of the similar rules apply, I suppose, in terms of having open conversations around these kind of things with young people. I think, like I say, the, the main one is is cannabis. So I think amongst this is amongst 16 to 24-year-olds, not amongst 11 to 15-year-olds, but there's been a 19% increase in cannabis use i think that was from 2016 so over the last kind of five years so yeah i think something to to be aware of as parents there and in terms of the pandemic is there ongoing research looking at the impact of the pandemic on teenage alcohol use i'm sure there is so there was in terms of adult use we know that there were kind of polarizing trends in consumption with around half of people drinking the same as before, a quarter drinking more and a quarter drinking less. And I think that would be really interesting to understand how the pandemic and the lockdowns have impacted youth drinking, because Mm. to some extent you would expect perhaps it to have declined. If younger people are spending a lot more time at home, they're seeing their friends less, there's not those opportunities for kind of social gathering. Possibly you would expect to see declines at least in kind of the mainstream or the majority of young people. Yeah, that's so interesting because there may even have been some improvements to physical health, but maybe a decline in mental health. It's not clear yet, is it? No. So we we know that young people are one of the groups who have suffered kind of the most in terms of well-being and mental health. They record kind of the, the largest declines. And I think there's 
obviously lots of kind of reasons for that. But for young people, the pandemic and the lockdowns has introduced so much uncertainty around, I mean, as it has for everybody, but around kind of the longer term. So younger people don't have careers yet. The ones who don't know whether they're going to end up going to university, if they do go to university, are they actually going to be able to physically go? Like, are they going to be able to sit the exams they've worked for? And all of these things at an advanced age, you look back and you think, oh, it's not the end of the world. But actually, when you are a teenager, that is your world and that is everything. And it feels like everything. And I think it's such a stressful time anyway. And to have kind of all this introduced uncertainty is is really quite a traumatic experience. I'll come back to schools, but I want to talk about transition to college or university. Again, I would imagine or hypothesize that transition to university can be really quite difficult for some young people in terms of not drinking, not being exposed to alcohol, and then suddenly university culture is notorious, can be, for, for drinking. What's the sort of data on that university drinking and what should we be aware of in order to help our children? Yeah, so I think students and university students tend to be a heavy drinking demographic. It's a very kind of, there's a culture of heavy drinking and kind of go hard, go home. So I do think there's an element of kind of maybe having conversations with your your kids about that in advance and explaining kind of what it's like and suggesting about, you know, to do what they're comfortable with. And obviously for a lot of young people, they are then legal drinkers and they're away from home for the first time and, you know, may very easily get carried away and go down that path. I think increasingly, though, there are shifts. So there are societies and movements around alcohol-free socialising. So either you know in pubs which offer no and low alcohol approaches or whether it's just kind of completely removed from alcohol settings so I think there was a society at Sheffield who talked about like roller discos and and nights that were kind of separate from alcohol so there is that culture there increasingly I think and there are shifts in this group although they they are a heavy drinking demographic yeah I I like the idea as a parent of saying don't you know try and search out some clubs where drinking isn't involved you know that there are I mean I think it's important to again bring that balance in some young people may be frightened by the idea that they'll be expected to drink heavily when they're not really interested in it as well so in terms of impact on mental health What would you say about that in terms of what do we know about impact? We know it's a depressant, but what what, what are the sort of top facts that you would like to share on that in that point? Yeah, so generally speaking, we know that alcohol and and kind of poor mental health, so anxiety and depression are, are, there's links or there's associations there. I think a lot of people who drink talk about drinking to relax and drinking to kind of feel calmer and, and less stressed. And maybe that would work in the short term, but it certainly doesn't help in the longer term, I think. And one interesting thing with regard to young people and alcohol in particular is alongside the declines in alcohol consumption, we've seen increases in poor mental health. And one of the kind of hypotheses there is that it could be there's kind of a move away from self-medication amongst young people in terms of drinking when they feel stressed about schoolwork or or exams perhaps and that's kind of why you see these diverging trends there. That's fascinating so almost mental health problems are exposed to a greater extent than they would have been in the past. Exactly yeah so that could easily be the case yeah. And the sort of options for reducing one's anxiety or, you know, that's what they're sort of looking for, the sort of apps and exercise and all those other things that seem to be talked about quite a lot. 
Yeah, definitely. And I do think there's this idea as well amongst kind of social media and like you were saying earlier about kind of the influencers who talk about perhaps their past relationships with alcohol and with drugs and perhaps that's kind of all part of that as well in terms of young people moving away from that and perhaps trying to to deal with it in a different way. I think things like um, therapy and talking more openly about poor mental health as well definitely seems to be the case in terms of just personal experience amongst young people that doesn't seem that there's the kind of same stigma as there was before around things like therapy or counselling. It seems that that seems to be a lot more accepted and a lot more normal. So let's talk about schools because it's all, it seems to be the poor schools who are often left having to address all of these quite complex issues. And it can be really difficult for schools to source, you know, strong evidence-based material and, and know what to have confidence in. And indeed, there was an article published by the health policy editor of The Guardian a month or so ago saying that UK pupils were taught about alcohol with misleading industry-funded resources, which I thought was, a, I don't know if you're familiar with that article but I thought it was incredibly interesting. Yeah it's it's a really really interesting topic of research and I think so generally speaking corporations which kind of peddle potentially harmful products so cigarettes and gambling and alcohol they definitely have a vested interest in in appearing to be part of the solution and they often have kind of corporate responsibility programs which often contribute resources to to schools to help in theory there's a really good example from the smoking world where smoking industry bodies kind of aggressively promoted youth education around around cigarettes and smoking through school-based programs and family-based programs but actually an analysis of the industry documents revealed that the kind of the the purpose for those programs in terms of the industry was to preempt regulation in terms of government regulation and also to kind of build relationships and to fend off resistance from parents and and from schools so it's kind of there is this this vested interest for them and to talk about kind of the specific example that you mentioned here so there was a paper published recently where they looked at three education campaigns around alcohol all of which were linked in some way to industry funding and they did an analysis essentially of the materials that were presented as part of this course and they found some quite worrying things in there so the the first thing that they noted was that around the documents and the uh, materials provided there was this discourse of kind of self-control or personal responsibility so they don't mention kind of the wider structural factors which might influence drinking things like advertising for example but they kind of focus on well it's an individual's job to kind of control how much they drink they talk a lot about peer pressure and the idea behind the, just kind of the drivers of youth drinking were around young people making poor choices and i think that's quite a dangerous narrative to set is that it's you know it's on the individual particularly for young people yeah it's their fault not the not the point that alcohol is addictive can be addictive and they are advertising it vociferously exactly exactly Mm. so that was kind of the one point and i think that's particularly dangerous because as I said before, it, it suggests this dichotomy of responsible versus irresponsible drinking. The the industry, they love the term responsible drinking, but they never define what that is. And like I said earlier, there is no kind of safe limit of alcohol. There's a lower risk limit, which is kind of what the guidelines are based around, but there's no safe responsible limit. And I think it kind of having this vague responsible drinking terminology allows 
a lot of people to think, well, I'm fine because I drink responsibly. I'm not the alcoholic, as it were. As I say, I don't really like that term, but yeah, the, to, to kind of give the point, and it it leads to this othering of kind of harmful drinkers that nobody thinks of themselves as being. So yeah, so sorry, that was one point, and then there's also a couple of other factors as well around the to go back to that kind of example of the the industry documents. So there's quite often a selective presentation of harms. So they underplay the harms that we know are associated with drinking. So they very rarely mention cancer across all of these documents, even though we know that that link is there. I think there was one example where the kids were asked to do a balancing exercise and there were kind of prompts given for the pros and cons of alcohol. And the cons, the suggested cons given were alcoholism and fighting. And then in the pros list, there were things like the glass and bottle industry, jobs and city uh, and, yeah. and, and socializing and relaxing. So it's kind of like when when the kind of pros and cons are presented in that way, it's the framing of those harms and the kind of selective presentation, which is kind of an issue. And then the last thing they kind of picked up on was around kind of normalizing alcohol consumption. So again, we've kind of touched on this a little bit, but there was kind of this impression given that drinking a little bit of alcohol to relax or to have fun was like a a safe and pleasant thing to do and and should kind of you know in a way be encouraged and that's fine it's only when it's kind of this problem drinking or harmful drinking that those kind of negative sides creep in so again Mm -hmm. it's kind of it's the way in I think the main problem with these kind of education campaigns if if you can call them that is is the framing of all these different things and there's actually organizations like the world health organization and public health england have concluded that there's no kind of evidence in favor of these educational campaigns having any kind of meaningful impact on alcohol consumption or public health but the fact that they're being used anyway allows the industry to say but look we have all these kind of strategies to help and to kind of mitigate the risks despite the fact that they don't work and there's kind of evidence that they don't work i mean they're very appealing they've got lesson plans curriculum resources and these poor busy teachers quite obviously would imagine that many of those educational initiatives are driven by research evidence so that's very alarming isn't it Mm, yeah definitely i think it is very very difficult for teachers because obviously they are you know overworked and underpaid a lot of the time and having kind of the the time to go away and do research themselves a lot of teachers don't have that time so I think the fact that these kind of things have been presented in this way it to me is is worrying I think one thing that could be done around these kind of things is a they could be kind of challenged at a school level so we now you know there was the media coverage around it perhaps that will kind of lead to some things happening in terms of bit more regulation in terms of where these these programs come from and a bit more thought around kind of the evidence base for the information that's used because there are strategies and things that have been shown to be effective in schools so perhaps that might create a bit of a shift i think in terms of what individual teachers can do if you know they don't necessarily have the power to decide which resources are used is to try and challenge a few of these things as as kind of they are going through it so to introduce some of the other harms and to have those conversations to talk about kind of the wider structural environment so things like alcohol advertising and product placement Mm. and i think one thing which is so interesting 
to me anyway, is um, kind of around advertising regulations. So the alcohol industry essentially polices itself in terms of sticking to the code. And there's articles which show that this isn't always followed and there's no, there's breaches occur. And I think one particular thing of interest with youth drinking at the moment amongst researchers certainly is alcohol placement in kind of youth fields. So one good example of that is around music videos. So often music videos, which I would say is quite exclusively geared at a younger audience. Often the celebrities might have their own alcohol brand or they might be kind of an ambassador for different alcohol companies. And then these particular types of alcohol find their way into music videos. And that to me is is essentially an advert, you know, there's there's a person of influence amongst young people who's saying, drink this. And they're always accompanied by people having parties and having a great time and looking really cool. And I think that's kind of factors like that as well need to be challenged and thought about. So what you're really asserting is that it's about literacy, digital literacy, media literacy, encouraging young people to not be manipulated by some of that messaging. I, I always find it deeply disturbing when you're watching a video and suddenly the, they bring out a bottle of a, of a particular spirit. So obviously it just feels so manipulative, it doesn't it, in the middle of sort of entertainment resources. Yeah, absolutely. So you've mentioned strategies that do work. And I know any educator listening to this will be saying, oh, Melissa, please, you know, tell us what we should be doing using. You've given us some ideas. They can actually come up with their own content. They could take that article that we referred to that we'll put in the notes accompanying this podcast, and they could actually use that as a sort of a a comprehension exercise or something to send young people off on their own research paths to look into. But are there any resources out there that you could concretely say to schools are good strong evidence-based resources they could use confidently in the classroom yeah so I'm sure there are I wouldn't be able to kind of say here and now which ones to go and use but I think just doing that research before kind of taking them on and going away and looking at where these things come from and is it a body that has industry funding industry ties and if it is really be quite skeptical when looking at that and and you know, challenge the kind of assertions in there if, if that's kind of what you've got to work with. And I think the kind of key things that I would say as, a, as an educator that I, I would try and do is to challenge the idea of this dichotomy between alcoholics and responsible drinkers. So think about the, the harms associated and be open with that, with, with all drinking and challenge this idea that there's only this particular group that are, are going to experience harms or are going to have any problems and really kind of talking about the wider structural issues as well. So things like advertising and like all these different things we've talked about up till now, I suppose, that would be my kind of key areas to try and really challenge and get across. Yeah, that's lovely. And teachers already have the skills to have that kind of dialogue and discussion in the classroom. So I think, and and young people have so much to say about these topics as well. Um, And would you advocate the sort of use of vignettes and case studies so that they can actually feel some sort of relationship to the content that they're studying? Yeah, I think that's a good idea. I think it's always good to kind of make things a little bit more concrete. We did um, some research recently at Sheffield, which used, it wasn't kind of in the same context, but we use kind of mock-ups of different youth groups and it just kind of enables that progression of conversation and allows young people to give something kind of concrete to talk around. Because I think often when you're in front of a group, 
nobody wants to be the first one to speak and nobody wants to kind of offer their own experiences but by kind of moving it away from that personal side of things and saying okay look at this person people can contribute to that conversation in a way that doesn't feel like they're revealing too much of their own personal life. But I think that educators and parents need to know what is the messaging we're trying to convey. And that's what this interview is about. Where should our messaging be positioned? And I think the ambivalence around that can often mean the conversations don't happen and we just end up being quite sloppy in our, our sort of conversations about this difficult issue. It's very difficult conversation to have. I mean, you see lots of research that even amongst kind of GPs, they don't feel qualified to have these conversations with people around alcohol consumption. It's it is, it's a difficult and sensitive subject. If you don't feel qualified to kind of offer advice, then you probably will shy away from those kind of things or you'll fall back on these messages like, well, don't drink. Well, it's okay for me because I'm an adult because you don't really know what to say. So I think yeah. really thinking before you go into these situations about, you know, more than that and, and and more of the detail I think is important. Earlier on you mentioned surveys looking at 11 year olds drinking which sounds deeply alarming I think for lots of parents but what is the right age to initiate conversations about alcohol? I would say early when I said earlier that the kind of increase in uh, first drink has increased over time that used to be 11 and is now 13 uh, so young people start drinking earlier than a lot of people and maybe even their parents would think. So I think it's never too kind of early to start that discourse around alcohol and to talk about the effects that it can have and, you know, why perhaps you might choose to have a drink and, you know, you might feel a bit rubbish the next day. I think being really open about that and setting that discourse early might mean that your children are more likely to then kind of be open with you as well. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 just a matter of working on little conversations a lot of the time, really, and doing some research together, I think, as a family. Would yeah. you agree with that? So tell us, Melissa, to finish off the interview, what are you working on at the moment? What exciting projects have you got in the pipeline? So at the moment, we're running quite a big trial to look at the effectiveness of an app that we've designed, the Drink Less app, to see if that helps people reduce alcohol consumption. And we're also about to start a project which looks at the context in which people drink and developing kind of targeted interventions based on contextual factors. So offering different advice to people who perhaps drink at the pub with their friends as opposed to strategies given to people who drink at home, maybe drink wine with their partner at home. Uh, so they're kind of the two main projects that I'm currently working on at UCL. And then this youth drinking project, the WIDED project at the University of Sheffield is ongoing as well. So the focus there at the moment is to really understand the drivers of the decline in alcohol consumption and to kind of establish almost a topography, so different types of young people and to try and look at the trends in their alcohol consumption and, and other factors and other behaviours over time as well. Wow, brilliant. So listen, let's stay in touch and uh, find out what happens with all those lovely projects. And if anyone wants to follow your research, how can they do so? I have Twitter. So you could follow me on Twitter or there's the, also the kind of UCL uh, broader Twitter as well, which you could follow as well to find research findings on there. Brilliant. Well, we shall follow your career with lots of interest. And thank you so much for those wonderful tips and ideas uh, that you've passed on to us today. All the very best. Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> This Get a Grip podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com 
Parents and teachers in tooled up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the tooled up site.